Well, good morning, Disciples Church. It's great to be with you here today. Worship our God, spend time in His Holy Word. Would you grab your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the letter of Ephesians? Find that towards the back of your Bible. What a joy it is to get to preach this letter and to, to, to see what God wants to do with us and as we study His Holy Word and, and move and sanctify the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to bring conviction and, and understanding and maturity in the faith for those who are still dead in sin apart from Christ to bring saving faith, if it be God's will, that you would repent of your sin and trust Jesus for salvation. Uh, what a joy it is to see uh, some new faces. And if, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I, I look forward to that. I'd love to get to know you. And um, God's just uh, at work in mighty ways here at Disciples Church and joyful to have you be part of it today and look forward to uh, moving forward together. We're in the beginning of chapter 2. Uh, and this morning focusing on just the first part of verse 2. I had the intention to preach uh, today all of verse 2, but in the final prep and study, there were two sermons there and not one. And so uh, it's my joy to, to know that where God's taking us next week is, is already some great stuff, as I've had just many hours in the Word to study and prepare and, and excited about what He has for us this morning. This Part of the Holy Scriptures, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, is a very special place in Holy Scripture. Uh, it's one of those places that gives us such great clarity for who we are in our sin apart from Christ, our desperate need for a Savior, um, and the good news of salvation and the grace of God, as we just finished singing about the work of God uh, for those who would die to themselves to repent of sin and trust their lives to Jesus as Lord. I've titled today's sermon that's focused on this first part of verse 2, Following the Way of the World. And we're desperate to hear God's Word today when it comes to the reality of our sin. We're desperate to heed Paul's clarity and Jesus' clarity as we look at a couple other passages that help us um, work through this passage Church, we, we must see rightly, for the sake of our testimony, the purpose of our days, um, for those who are still dead in sin, we must see these things clearly and rightly. For those of you who stand apart from Christ, you still are the Lord of your own life. You're, you're, you are looking into this, this thing, this religion, this, this faith, this, this God thing. You're looking to the Word for answers uh, but, but, but you are apart from Jesus. You need to see what Holy Scripture says about your spiritual allegiances, the darkened and damned path that you're committed to apart from Christ in your sin, to see your desperate need for a Savior. As we move into the, the depths of verse 2 this morning, let's not forget the foundation of verse 1 that verse 2 is really built on. Uh, the work we did last week in verse 1. Paul, Paul is speaking to Christian brothers and sisters. That's who he's writing his letter to in the region of, of Ephesus. And, and he says here in the beginning of this chapter in verse 1 that they were dead in their trespasses and sins. Because of the sin of our federal head, Adam, the first man, the one whom God chose to represent mankind, because Adam chose sin and reaped the curse of spiritual death, all of us who are after or in Adam, as Scripture speaks of it, are cursed as well. Dead in sin. Scripture says that we are conceived in sin. That we're depraved and spiritually dead because of Adam's original sin. That, that seed, that curse, passes through our parents to each of us in conception. We're counted as guilty because of Adam's sin. His guilt, Scripture says, is imputed to us. It's credited to us. We must understand every child conceived in the womb by the seed of man bears the sin of our first parents. And as a result, we have a morally ruined character. There's no hope for doing good, any spiritual good, apart from God's gracious intervention to bring new life apart from God giving spiritual life to that which is spiritually dead. These are important clarities that His Holy Word lifts up and, and brings forth that we, we need to understand clearly and rightly. 
not according to our own reasoning, but according to how He has laid these things forth in Holy Scripture. As we will see today, our guilt is not only due to Adam, his sin, it's due to ourselves. For we prove to be of Adam every day we live. We live apart from Christ and walk in sin and practice sin and follow the course of this fallen world. This is Paul's point in verse 2. Look with me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul's saying not only were you dead in sin and had a morally ruined character, but you lived it out. Apart from Christ, you walked in it. You practiced it. You were good at it. This is the sin that, that, we, that we commit, that we do as fallen man. Let me remind us that while we who are in Christ are still at war with our flesh and we still sin, we are not yet in glory, while our sin is paid for, past, present, future, while we have the power to fight sin, to turn from sin, we're no longer enslaved to sin. That's the reality of what it means to be in Christ. This is specifically speaking of the of the depth and the width of those who are apart from Christ. All they do is sin, practice sin, live out sin, follow the course of this world. Even the good things that are done apart from Christ are are sin, Scripture says. I'll elaborate more on that in just a little bit. But see with me, when Paul says that we walked in it, he's saying sin is how we lived. It was our practice, we, our way, it was our lifestyle. So today I want to slow, I want us to see the layers of how we do sin, uh, how we practice, how we walk in sin. What does the course of this world look like as, as Paul is bringing forth here in this part of the passage? Other passages in Holy Scripture help us to interpret this one and uh, and often a historic practice of good preaching is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so we, we turn to God's Word to help us do that. In John's first letter, 1 John 3, 4, John says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is described in the Bible as a transgression against the law of God, a, a breaking of it, a disobeying it. So sin or lawlessness are are not just meaningless or harmless errors of judgment that reap temporary consequences. They're offenses against the holy God. They fail to meet the perfect standard of God. And and we need to understand we do this with our words. We, We do this with our thoughts. We do this even with our feelings. Consider with me the varied ways that practiced sin plays out it finds its way Uh, there's many passages we could look to so for the sake of time i i took a collage or a collaboration of 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 many passages uh, and i want to just give us a list that scripture defines of sin and let us just see the depth and the width and the varied ways in which sin plays out in mankind and so to do this we're going to look at at, uh, sins listed from mark 7 Romans 1, Romans 13, Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, Colossians 3, 1 Timothy 1, Revelation 21. Not an exhaustive list, but, but give us a taste, give, give us a, an insight. Consider these with me for a moment. Evil thoughts. Sexual immorality. Theft. Murder. Adultery coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, idleness, homosexuality, malice, strife, Gossip, hatred of God, haughtiness, disobedience to parents, ruthlessness, orgies, drunkenness, quarreling, 
jealousy, sorcery, enmity, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, and obscene talk. You might have noticed as I read through that list of varied sin from Scripture that you see that sin can be passive or active disobedience. It can be in the mind, it can be in our emotions, it can be in our words, it can be in our actions. It can even be the reason why we effort to do the right thing. It's these layers that are within what Paul's saying here. When we walk in sin, we do sin. We follow the course of this world. And so, so this morning I, I want to just I want to look at some of the layers, some of the ways that, that sin is practiced and unfolds so we see it with some clarity this morning. Uh, first, the sins of commission. A sin of commission is an act we commit. It's something we do in thought, in word, or in deed. We commit the sin. We, we do the sin. As Paul says in our verse, we, we walk in them, doing these things. The sin of commission is the sin of actively doing what God prohibits. It's what we typically think of, I think, when we think of sin. The things he has said not to do that we do. It is an important note. A sin of commission can be intentional or unintentional. Meaning just because you didn't know it was the law of God that he said you should not do it in that particular area of life doesn't mean you're not guilty of breaking his perfect law in that area. Just as with a, a modern day example, if you're driving an unfamiliar road and you are caught speeding on that road, the argument of I didn't know I was speeding doesn't work. You were still breaking the speed limit. You were still breaking the law. The author of Hebrews makes it clear that atonement, what is needed to forgive our sin, was for intentional sins and unintentional sins. All sin that falls short of the glory of God. Hebrews 9, 7, but... Into the second only the high priest goes, and but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. The New American Standard Translation says, for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Before we move on, uh, a, a bold example of committed sin is the first sin of mankind. God clearly commanded man Adam and Eve, not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We see that in Genesis 2, and yet in Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They took action to commit a sinful act by eating the forbidden fruit. They did what they were commanded not to do. Consider with me the other side of the coin, sins of omission. In James 14, James says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Sins of omission is sin that is the result of not doing something God's law requires or that God's word teaches us that we should do, to omit, to leave out, to exclude. The sin of omission is the sin of failing to do what God requires. In the New Testament, uh, one of the more popular examples given by Christ himself is a parable told, which we know well as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Which essentially goes like this. A man is beaten harshly and left on the roadside in great need of help. And two men pass by at first, a priest and a Levite, both of whom knew it was right to help this man, but in their fleshly justification and sin did not help him. They went about their way. And then an unusual character, a Samaritan, politically it would not have been very uh, normal to do this, but he did the right thing. The Samaritan helped the man in need, showed him compassion. And Jesus uses this example to teach that we are likewise to help those in need, that that is righteous and honoring to God. It didn't matter that people's stature or their other forms of position, they 
The two others sinned, and this man did the right thing. Clearly communicating it is sinful to avoid doing what is right. I think mankind is often guilty of thinking that sins of commission, the things we do that we're not supposed to do, are somehow worse than sins of omission, not doing the things that I'm supposed to do. They are both sin. They are both worthy of God's righteous judgment. There's another layer of our practice sin, our walking in sin, that I want us to see this morning. The Word of Truth Catechism that we study, question 33, helps us to its answer. The question is, what is sin? The answer is, sin is disobeying God. Sin is any disobedience in heart or deed to God's perfect law and commands. We've just talked about the deed The doing or the not doing. Doing or saying what God forbids or not doing or saying what God commands. But what about the disobedience in heart? Consider with me that layer. This is having the wrong state of mind, motivation, or desires behind what we do or feel or say. That's not enough just to have what looks like on the outside look good. God knows the heart, the very motivation. The very motivation for what we do or don't do is often the very root of our sin. It is sin, hear me clearly, to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. These are forms of self-salvation, of self-righteousness. Jesus makes this clear in Luke 16, 15. He said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Consider Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. He says in Mark 10, 19-20, says the rich young, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler said back to Jesus, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Boasting a a self-proclaimed great report card. Hey, on the outside, I've I've done really well. I've, I've, I've lived a very obedient life. I've been very disciplined in what I do. Jesus, being God, second and eternal person of the all-knowing Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus knows this man feels he has earned his inheritance for eternal life because he thinks he's kept the law well. So Jesus tests his true devotion where his heart belongs, where his identity is, where his real treasure is. And tells him, sell what you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. The man went away disheartened and sad. His outward obedience did not overcome the true devotion of his heart. The motivation for his righteous deeds or faithful obedience was sinful. So he continued to walk in sin to not be committed to Jesus as Lord. It's one thing to say Jesus is Lord, and it's another thing to actually live your life as Jesus is Lord. You belong to Him. You act or don't act according to what He commands and instructs you to. It is your joy to serve Him with your days, your money, your family, your time, your gifts. And sadly, even according to Scripture, there are many who profess superficial faith and have long legacies of religion or faithfulness to the church, but are not saved. For they have not died to self to commit their lives to Jesus as Lord. So when Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The ways in which we practice sin or walk in sin 
are varied. We need to see these things. The things that we do that we should not. The sins of commission. The things we don't do that we should. The sins of omission. The sinful reasons why we do good or right things. These are the the sins that we think, that we feel, that we say, or that we do, or don't do. See with me the reality of one who is dead in sin, while they may be a really nice person, a really kind person, they may do many good things. Sin is practiced in their life in many ways. Rightly earning them separation from the Holy God and rightly earning His eternal judgment for their sin. Paul adds yet another layer to our condition apart from Christ. Look with me in the second part of the verse. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. What does it mean to follow the course of this world? To be of the world. It means we live apart from faith in God. Apart from devotion to what honors God. Our course is sinful. It serves ourselves. It it serves to appease or please the creation, others, mankind, instead of the Creator, God. It's the absence of true faith. I want to mine down into that, because I think there's layers there that sometimes we miss. The most sobering definition of sin that I'm aware of in Scripture, we see in a couple places, and one of those is in the last part of Romans chapter 14, verse 23. In a few very short but potent words, Paul says, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The reason it is so penetrating is that it goes to the root of all of our sinful actions or attitudes, namely a failure to trust God. The original language gives emphasis to this even more than our English translations, saying everything which is not from faith is sin. Everything, anything, any act or attitude which is not from saving faith, complete and total trust in God unto the glory of God is sin. No matter how good it is, no matter how helpful it is, no matter how it appears to other men or yourself, God looks beyond the action to the heart, to the motivation. Do you do it for His glory? Do you do it out of faith? Trusting Him. Obeying and honoring Him. Consider this. All pervasive fault in every sin is its character of unbelief. Unbelief is the issue. And when I say unbelief, I don't mean a lack of mental assent, a refusal to accept the truths of the Bible. You might be going, I believe the the things of the Bible. Hear me, we're not saved by mental assent to the promises of God. Like, I believe they're true. No, no, we're saved when we hope in our hearts in those promises and truths. When we trust in total confidence and submit to the promises of God. To believe in Him completely. That's faith. Saving faith. A failure of the heart to rejoice and find pleasure in His way, in Him, in His provision, is the root or the essence of sin. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. So track with me. All we do is sin apart from saving faith. Why? This is why all who are not yet belonging to Christ, all who have not yet died to self to give their lives to Jesus completely and wholly, are in sin. And everything they do is sin. Why? Because the aim of your thoughts, your deeds, your words, 
even if they're sacrificial, even if they're generous, even if they're loving, even if they're kind, their aim or their purpose is sinful and wicked. Why? Because it's not for the glory of God. It serves another purpose. I'm doing this good, generous, nice thing because of something else it gets or does on the horizontal. Its aim is not for him and for his glory. Thereby robbing what the creator is due from the creation that all that we do should be unto the glory of God. The, the source of the activity, the motivation for it is not faith. It's not trusting God. It's birthed in the flesh. It's from sin. It's from self. Apart from Christ, apart from saving faith, everyone is dead in sin and surely walks and practices only sin. Again, even if they live a really good life. The path they're on is worthy of destruction, of, of judgment. For they are in their sin. They fall short of the glory of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, lacking faith, not waking up. I belong to you. It's my joy to serve you, honor you with my thoughts, my words, my actions. It all is yours. Instead, there's a pursuit of the world, of the things of the world, as if our identity, our hope, our peace, our joy is found in them. Recognize something very profound that Paul is saying here. When he says, those dead in sin are following the course of the world, this means they look very normal. These, these are things that look very normal. When you look around, there are things you often see other people doing in your family, in your classmates, in your coworkers, in all those who are unbelieving and not submitted to Christ. Their path is enslaved to the spiritual deadness and practice of sin. They do nothing under the glory of God or out of true or lasting faith in God. My point is this. You can't decide what to do or not do based on what is normal. You can't look left or right and go, this is the way it should look. Normal is the course of this world. For our teenagers, the first hour, it, you come to the right service, lots of room to grow, and many other things are happening in the second hour. The room's packed first hour. All the teenagers are here. and Encourage them, and those who might be listening later, teenagers, your guide for what it should look like should not be looking left or right at your peers. For what is normal in sin is damnable and not God-honoring. Parents, adults, your guide for what your life should look like when it comes to love relationships, to financial management, to the making of your priorities, to what you do with your free time, to how you should educate, discipline, and raise your children cannot be based on what's normal. For normal is wrought with sin. You can't look at, oh, but for these guys, look how, look how disciplined their kids turned out or how educated they were or, or look how nice their house is or, or it just, they just seem to be so happy. Dead in sin is dead in sin. There might be some superficial stuff there that looks good on the outside. It is dead in sin. And trust me, there are layers to depravity and addiction and wickedness that normal is involved in all the time, even if you don't see it on the surface. Often tell young adults as they're getting ready to get married, if you are obedient to God with your money, if you're good stewards of it, you likely won't have the lifestyle that you've seen in most of your neighbors. Why? Because most of your neighbors are grossly in debt. And so what they have and do, normal, is 
not healthy. It's not good. It's sinful. It's a route with pain and suffering and, and disagreements and overworking and all the other things that, to keep up with it. Scripture says the ones who honor God are exiles in this time. We're called sojourners. We're said to be set apart. Scripture says that we will be seen as weird, as outcast, as even crazy. That, that to the watching world, the way that honors Christ is folly. Jesus made this clear in his Sermon on the Mount when he said, Matthew 7, 13-14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, enter by it, are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The gate that is wide is normal is often what you see. It's the default for mankind in sin. Jesus says the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. In other words, the broad path, it, it, it looks great as you stand among the crowds and you get to to see what, what they're doing and, how, and, and the ease of their lives and, and how by the breaking of the commandments or, or a little bit of lying over here or a little bit of manipulation, they're happy. They're, 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 they're covering the junk. They're just taking on something new. And it looks great, but he's saying it leads to prison. A prison of unfulfilled longings for love and acceptance. A prison of uncontrollable habits. A prison of unresolved fears. Worse, an eternal prison where we pay for our sin. Hear me today, the wide path leads to prison. It leads to something extremely narrow. Tight walls of the worst kind of jail cell. Understand the broad path is very inclusive. It is sold as the always lead to heaven path. It is super inclusive. It's the other religions still get to heaven path. It's the just be a good person path. It's the follow the rules and, and earn your way to heaven path. It's, it, is, it is the mantra. It is the voice of a lost society. And it's why the drum is being beat louder than ever. The inclusivity that any way you want to go, we want to call it good and it's okay. The road is broad, it's wide, because it contains any pursuit of salvation that is not solely dependent on Jesus. It says in verse 14, For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. See with me that the narrow road, it seems on the surface to be very limiting, very exclusive, but it leads to an eruption of life and love. It leads not to prison, but to something wonderfully wide and broad. Its way is narrow because the only way is Jesus. It is very narrow. When people say to us as Christians that we are too narrow in our practice or in our thinking, take that as a compliment. Because the way to life is extremely narrow. It means the truths of God's Word and the truths of the Gospel are coming out of you. And the world hates it. The agenda of the world detests it. Scripture says that we'll be persecuted for it. it, it hear me clearly. It's not Jesus plus how you act that gets you there. It's not Jesus plus how you dress. It's just Jesus. That's it. 
It's just Jesus and that's all I got, but that's all I need. Amen? Jesus is trying to show us that the narrowness of Jesus is the only way that leads to the spaciousness of eternal life with God. And the spaciousness of of the any path anyone can come, no matter what you do or no matter who you're devoted to path, leads to incredible extreme narrowness and eternal death. The problem in today's culture is the alternatives to the gospel, although they look incredibly broad and inviting and spacious and free and tolerant, the reality is on the inside, they're incredibly cramped and narrow and miserable and depressed and lonely. They say they are the ones who are being loving and tolerant, but that is deception because it leads to a hole. It leads to suffocation. It leads to death through narrowness. It leads to eternal damnation. Oh, how we need to see the course of this world, the path or the walk or the practice of those who are dead in sin is the path or the practice that leads to eternal destruction. We need to see that the failure of the idols of our hearts to satisfy and save us, we must expose them. For they cannot save us. They are not lasting. John Calvin, 16th century reformer, said famously, our hearts are idol factories in our sin. Our Word of Truth Catechism, question 34, what is the sin of idolatry? The answer is, idolatry is worshiping or finding hope, identity, significance, purpose, or security in anything other than in God our Creator. And so in our sin and our idolatry, we dream for and we chase counterfeits. We do this two ways. In our sin of idolatry, we we take good things, good gifts, and we turn them into sinful things, trying to find our identity or our hope or our purpose or our joy in them instead of in God. And so we chase after fast cars and big screen TVs and and the accomplishments of our kids, and, 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 and tasty food, and we put too much on the temporary. Our sin of idolatry also causes us to, find, to look to find identity and hope and peace and joy in sinful things. And so we turn to drunkenness or drugs. We, we turn to, to manipulating others or stealing. We, we turn to extramarital sexuality we, we turn to overworking or, or, or just grabbing hold of just laziness. We must see how captured we are in our depravity. We need to see our need for Jesus alone. We must take this oh so seriously because God will not be swayed by our earthly reasoning when we stand before Him in judgment. He will not conform to our self-justification, to our fleshly ignorance. His way is set. His purposes are higher than ours. It all belongs to Him. But there's good news, church. There's good news, listener. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is a way. A way that God has made possible in grace that we did not earn or deserve the, the life, the death, the resurrection of God the Son in our place that take on our sin that we could be forgiven past, present, future. Given the power of the Holy Spirit, the, 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 the want and the will to, to honor and live for God and to change our path unto a life that honors Him and lives for His glory and not just for the temporary, not just for ourself and our flesh. And it's transforming lives. The narrowness of the path to life is narrow. It is exclusive in this way. The only way is Jesus. Or to say it a different way, all you need is Jesus. 
Have you ever been invited to stay at a king's house? Literally a king. And if so, what do you bring to the king's house for an overnighter? I mean, maybe some of maybe if some of you stayed in a really, really nice hotel and you get there and 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 you start laughing because they have provided all these things that you brought with you. Oh, we didn't need to pack that, or we didn't need to pack that or pack that. And then you start to realize, oh yeah, there this stuff, the king stuff is way nicer than my stuff. And, and, and there it is. I want you to really think about that for a moment. If you're going to stay with the king, you don't need to bring anything with you from your present house. Why? Because he has everything you need and because everything he has is better than what you have. Jesus taught us the way to life is truly narrow. Why? Why is the road to life narrow? Because we don't need to carry any of our trophies or money or retirements or possessions or pictures or diplomas or, or anything else. We just need Jesus. Why is the road to eternal destruction so wide? Because we are so suffocated by our idols and our pursuits and we worship these things and we, and we, and we over put our identity into these things and we let it confound us and bring worry and stress. It's the, it's the anchor that holds us down. Jesus is reminding us all we need is Him. For those who are saved, Christ's words here are huge. A reminder to check ourselves. Many, many who are saved, who look forward to Jesus' invitation to feast, but have somehow got caught up in a, an overcling to the things of the temporary. Well, our hearts and our arms get so full of the world that we have no time to help anyone else. Well, we don't have real pursuits for discipleship or real study of the Word or, or, or prayer because we're so, we're so plagued by by jobs and pursuits and, and hobbies and habits that just keep us busy and distracted with the temporary. The gate to life is narrow on purpose because with your arms full of this world, you're not going to fit through the door. Only with a God-empowered faith and satisfaction in Jesus alone do you lay it down or learn to rightly steward it with a right grip that honors God, where your hope is not in those things, it's not in those relationships, it's not in those pursuits, it's in God. Praise God, I need none of my good deeds. I rest on His merit alone to get through the door. That's the good news of the Gospel. If you're guilty of truly being more devoted to the things of the world than to Christ, then repent and believe in Jesus alone. Confess your sins to a trusted brother or sister. Invite them to walk with you to pursue a reorientation of those priorities, uh, an accountability to put away those habits or those commitments or those pursuits. Put your identity in Jesus alone. Stop living for the temporary and learn to manage the temporary, what God entrusts to us, in a way that honors Him and shows a watching world that our identity, our hope, our peace is in Him, not in these things. We need to see the course of this world, the path or the walk or the practice of those dead in sin as a path and a practice that leads to eternal destruction, suffering. Church, may the words of David be our words as we learn to, to be satisfied in God and to trust Him in faith, in true faith. That, he, that our joy is in Him, our trust is in Him, our, our peace is in Him. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want or I shall not want, other translations say. I'm a sheep that's learned in joy in the gospel that I don't have to find my own way or make my own way. I trust the shepherd. I follow the shepherd. My peace and my identity is in the shepherd. And so what else do I want or need? I'm satisfied in him.
Paul understood this, author of this letter to Ephesians. He understood it well. We see it throughout his other letters. Hear Paul's words quickly with me. 2 Corinthians 6, 4-10 through 10 is an example. He says, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, in riots, in hard work, in sleepless nights, in hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonor, with bad report or good report, genuine or regarded as imposters, known or regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and not yet killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor and yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. How can Paul say this? How can these things be true in the midst of all that? Because he's satisfied in Christ. Because he's alive in Christ. Because it belongs to Christ. He agrees with David that in God he shall lack not one good thing. I've been given everything I need in Christ. Do you see when Yahweh is your shepherd, when you are his sheep, what do you need that he has not already provided or will provide for you? You trust him. You walk by faith in him. I am a chaplain in the motorcycle club I'm a member of to bring the gospel to a really dark part of our, our world. And I get to have the honor of being one of the chaplains who gets to have a, a pretty national voice in running our prayer chain and doing some Bible teaching throughout the week. And people around the world getting to study and walk with us. And when you're running a prayer chain for an international organization, you're constantly in the midst of really hard stuff. When your bubble gets really wide, then when someone's beloved wife or son who's dying way earlier than they should, that's a, that becomes too normal. Why? Because the fallen world we live in. And so I'm constantly trying to tell my brothers and sisters in Christ in these ways, let your faith in God abound in this moment. God of all creation, sovereign and perfect in all of his ways, has ordained, has numbered the days of those that you love perfectly. It might not be according to your plan, but you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to him. And you walk by faith in him, so let your faith abound in this moment as you yield to him, as you trust him, as you pray to him in confidence as you don't hold him hostage and say, God, if you're good, you better do what I want you to do. No, I trust God. I belong to God. All of this is his, and it is my joy to be his. So let's link arms, and let's go, and let's pray, and let's fight this fight, and let's, let's tell this gospel good news to those who are dead in sin and desperate for a Savior. Let us be bold in our proclamation of these truths. Let us turn Godward, those who are dead in sin, to turn to Christ, who stands in our place to achieve all that is needed to be restored to the King of kings, the living God, who then becomes our identity, our personal significance, our sense of security, our purpose for living the reason why you're married, the reason why you're a parent, the reason why you're given another day to let your brain work, to work your job, is for His glory and for His purposes. It's not for all the temporary stuff that we get all caught up in. That's the course of the world. That's, that's a course that has a, a time limit on it, and it's, and it's for sin, it's for, it's for the enemy. But we steward it, we manage it, we do it for His glory. In Christ, we receive an identity with God that we can never gain ourselves. 
We join Paul. We join David. We join Paul when he says, I consider it all rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. In Christ alone is life that is free from idolatry and self-salvation. He gets to say, in Christ alone we practice the things that honor God and not the flesh. We walk in obedience instead of in sin. In Christ alone we are able to exchange the temporary and the fleeting pleasures of this world for the eternal pleasures found in God alone, who we will enjoy forevermore. In Christ alone does the heart and the actions say, you can have that gluttony, I have the bread of life. You can have that drunkenness, I have living water. You can have that money, I have incomparable riches in heaven. You can have that fame, I love it now when the spotlight is put on my Savior and no longer on me. You can have that laziness, I wait to serve God and steward my days for His purposes. You can have the normal of this life. I have eternal life that is surpassingly better. Amen? You can have it. Because all I need is Jesus. In Christ alone, there is nothing I lack or need. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God. You are able, more than able, to do a mighty work. For some in this place, they stand at the crossroads the rich young ruler did to consider all that they've been working so hard for, all that they've been putting their identity in, all the the compromise that they think by their work or their management of it will bring what they want it to bring. And you call us to lay it down, to, to die to ourselves, to trust it to you, to do it your way. And for some, they're going, how? I don't even know if I want to. I pray you would give them, in, in saving faith, the desire more than anything to honor you, to serve you. No matter what it costs, no matter how hard it's going to be, to give it away and follow Christ, that Jesus is my identity, my joy, my satisfaction, my purpose for living now and forevermore, I'm in. Help us, Lord. Empower us that these would be true of us in Christ, true of our growing and maturing faith. Let this gospel truth move through us. Hear us now as we worship you in response. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's.